Takeaway with Sunil Badami on ABC Local Radio. Hi, it's me, Sunil Badami, and it's time for your Sunday Takeaway on ABC Local Radio. Well, every episode of The Takeaway, we share some of the best stories from the most interesting storytellers from around the country. And today, we're going to be talking, taking our time with our subject today and taking it nice and easy. Because let's face it, in this fast-paced, frenetic, connected world, from cities that never sleep to a global village that's always connected, we've always got appointments, rushing from place to place, no time, running to stand still, your life not so much measured by coffee spoons as alarm bells. Well, do you wish you could get off the hamster wheel? and opt out of the rat race and take a moment to pause, catch your breath, slow down, stop and smell the roses. Well, all good things take time and today on Sunday Takeaway, we're taking the time to take things a little bit slow. Everybody thinks life on a Pacific island is so laid back and there's no pressure as everything runs on island time. Well, ABC New South Wales Afternoons presenter Fiona Wiley has just spent two years in Vanuatu and she's here to explain more about what the locals lovingly call the V-Factor. And her friend, local, uh, local Port Vilawan, I'll ask the pronunciation later, Paso Sope, will take us along to try some kava. And Broome, well, it's got a reputation of being a laid-back outpost, a remote paradise where it's warm all year and life runs slowly. But Rob Mailer, who's the breakfast presenter from ABC Kimberley, based in Broome, found that one morning, time was actually speeding up. So why don't you kick back, relax, and take it nice and easy, because in your Sunday takeaway, we're taking time to leisurely wander through slowness. I almost feel like saying, nice. That was Keb Moe from his album Slow Down, appropriately entitled Slow Down. It won the 1998 Grammy for Best Contemporary Blues Album. Do you feel nice and slow, Fiona and Robert? Um, yeah. Totally. Just wake me up when we're done. <laughs> I'm barely awake. <laughs> because you've just finished breakfast, haven't you? This That's is like, I should say, good afternoon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But no, that was a lovely music choice, Sunil. <laughs> Thank you. As my mother would say, because she sometimes does hypnotherapy, you're feeling very relaxed. <laughs> does she get hypnotised or is she doing the hypnosis? No, she's doing the hypnosis. Well, has she ever I... hypnotised you, Sunil? That's what I wanted to ask. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Pete. Maybe she's hypnotised me to do the washing up all the time. <laughs> So, Fee, tell me, everybody dreams of moving to a tropical paradise, and you have, but why did you pick Vanuatu in particular? Well, we'd been going there for a while, my husband even before he set eyes on, you know, marrying me, and we had our honeymoon in a very remote part of uh, the island called Tanna. And uh, as, a, as a late bride, I was almost 
45, I think, or 40. Yeah, I just turned 45 the day before I got married. And off we went uh, to on my, you know, honeymoon where everyone expects to you know, sit by a pool and sip cocktails. And I was somewhere where there was no electricity. We once walked for two and a half hours through the jungle on a promise of a cold beer. And I don't even drink beer, but the idea of putting something cold against my cheek was <laughs> enticing. <laughs> and uh, oh, in a typical Vanuatu way, the last cold beer was sold yesterday. <laughs> so Steve didn't get a beer. I didn't get to put anything cold on my forehead. But it made me realize that these people are incredible. It is a very beautiful, beautiful part of the Pacific. And my husband had fantasized about living on a Pacific island since, you know, he was a teenager. He must have had one of those posters, you know, in his bedroom that many teenage boys of that time did where there was a sunset and a palm tree. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, they used to sell them at the record shops. And uh, so we did it. We, um, I had long service leave. And instead of just doing it like most people would and renting a place, we, we, we throw ourselves into most things we do. We bought a house, which that means that you have to go through all sorts of bureaucracy. And as Vanuatu was once um, run by both the French and the English, they used to put a line straight down the middle of every island it the it's a it's unbelievable when you do choose to live in a place just how much is involved in uh getting everything done to to be able to do that but it was it was such an adventure and one day I will write about it because as I know Sunil everyone's got a book inside them and some people should leave it there <laughs> Sunil's favorite quote <laughs> so how much slower is the pace of life there fee well around Seven o'clock in the morning, you wouldn't think it's that much slower than other towns I've lived in. But I have to say, you know, I've, I had my first, um, I grew up in what was a sleepy town at the time, but has almost become part of Sydney, Terrigal. So that was a, a holiday village and a fishing village when I grew up. And, On the New know, South Wales Central Coast. It is. It's just north of Sydney, but we used to have, you know, really windy roads. And so it seemed a lot further away than it does now as it's, you know, not far off a freeway. But uh, when I went, uh, I, I then got into the into radio. I moved to Sydney to study art and, and ceramics. And then I got discovered and did radio. And of course, radio is all about getting to the big markets. So I started in Gosford, which was my hometown. And then I went to Canberra. And then Sydney, you know, that trajectory of faster, faster, faster. And then I was I was looking at the red roofs of, of Sydney one cold, wet morning. And I was doing breakfast in, in Sydney Radio, which is pretty competitive. And I thought, I don't want to be here next winter. And so I um, ended up, my brother and I bought a little farm on the Snowy River, moved to a town with a population of 41, and, and I worked in the ski industry. But... In fact, the ski industry, when it's, you know, full-on ski season, can be just as busy as any city that you've worked in. Mm. So I guess, you know, life's always a bit of a balance, isn't it, between you see it as slow and ideal when you visit on the weekend, but when you start working anywhere, it can be pretty pressured. I mean, I also have to ask you, um, you didn't want to have a Sydney winter, so you'd have a Snowy Mountains winter. Oh, yeah, but at least then you can ski. <laughs> you're not just wet and cold. You're, you know, you're dressed appropriately and, oh, it's, there's nothing quite like. I, my, my dad describes it 
as the best theme park in the world, being in, in, in the snow, where everything is like a, a fairy palace, white and sparkly and, you know, pretty amazing. But then I start thinking about where Rob is and that beautiful Kimberley where I've never been and the colours there. Oh, gosh, it must be awesome. Is it, Rob? I've it never been awesome. either. It is awesome. Uh, and it's a wonderful thing to live in a place which has that because it it allows you to get replenished and refreshed just by walking outside almost. I mean, the other thing about it, all, I suppose, also is there is living here has got its own set of challenges. It's quite remote. At the moment, for example, it's incredibly humid and hot. Uh, temperatures are sort of in the high 30s and 40s with about 80 to 90% humidity. Uh, so right now, <laughs> the colours are great. But <laughs> you're inside, you don't look. Yeah, a little. I mean, and this is coming to the end of what we call our wet season. So uh, the dry sort of, it doesn't really begin with a definitive moment, but it's sort of during April. And then by May, uh, that's when it comes into its own to an extent because it's, it's cold everywhere else, but it's absolutely gorgeous here. Uh, but it's kind of a good thing too, I think, because sometimes it's too much of a good thing. You get a bit, you know, you get you get a bit too well treated in a way. And it makes you really appreciate that gorgeous dry time. Well, I mean, speaking of, that kind of weather. I mean, it must be pretty similar in Vanuatu. Does the it, weather have an impact on the pace of life? Oh, indeed. It, indeed. You know, they do have the, the, the siesta. They, yeah. they shut down everything uh, from just before 11 o'clock and reopen it too. And, you know, it's kind of hard to get used to when you've, you've, you've been in a, you know, a 24-7, because uh, my home now is near Port Macquarie. And it, it's not, I mean, some people would think that's pretty sleepy, but it, uh, you know, there's shopping centres that just are open and supermarkets from early in the morning to late at night and things shut down. It's kind of, I do kind of like the shutting down shops because it's, it gives you a breather. Do you do you have a siesta in Broome, Rob? We don't have it officially, and it's an interesting area you're getting into there, Fee. I reckon because you talk about you know island time and V time, and there's a there is a concept of Broome time as well, which is which is known. There's some businesses even called Broome time, um, but what and it's the same idea. You know that things will get there eventually. It'll be okay. You know if you don't turn up this morning, they'll turn up tomorrow. <laughs> uh, which which in a way is romantic and beautiful and everyone sort of aspires to that idea of, oh, wouldn't life be great if we weren't being driven by the clock? But sometimes it can be really frustrating as well because people want their tradie to turn up at 10 o'clock because they've arranged their childcare for it. And, you know, mm. these things are reality of life today, you know, and it doesn't matter where you are and maybe slightly different in Vanuatu, but I think anywhere in Australia almost, uh, it's still those realities of life still exist. People still have to go to work. Uh, you know, the, the time marches on um, and it may be more to do with the fact that we're not rushing through thousands of people or with thousands of cars to get to that point. Um, but although we enjoy what would be like, I like that idea of you use the word sleepy there, Fee, as well, which is, which is kind of interesting. I think because there there is a sleepiness to it, and particularly here as well, because there's a big contrast between the dry and what they call the tourist season and now. Um, in the tourist season, a Broome's population is about fifteen thousand. In the dry, it gets up to forty five thousand. So mm. you could imagine the the significant differences in places like the supermarkets and the, just the streets. Um, during those times. So all the locals kind of love the wet in a way because of that as well, because there is this, it almost comes back to itself um, uh, during this period of the time. The old broom. Yeah, to an extent. And that's this, again, that's that 
romantic broom time thing which people really want to cling to and uh, are almost proud of in a way when they talk about this place in which they live they want that sense of the old days where and and then there are still elements to it which i think are, are like the old days with in things with 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 children again you know there's a market here on saturday and there'll be just this pack of 40 kids who are running around um and their parents are completely oblivious <laughs> what and i'm one of them i can tell you uh you know there's that like the old days in the country where your kids could run off and just muck around for a couple of hours and come back um there's still those elements which people are, are clinging to, uh, but then the broom time thing—it's—it's it's almost it's sort of in this competition of of the reality of what today means and what it is to uh, to live and breathe in uh, 2014 in Australia. You're on ABC Local Radio with me, Sunil Badami. We're on, hanging out, chilling out on the takeaway with ABC Kimberley Brecky presenter Robert Mailer and New South Wales statewide Arvo's presenter Fiona Wiley from ABC Mid North Coast. Well. Speaking of broom time, it actually sped up recently, didn't it? Yeah, it sure did. It, it, this was an amazing moment of radio, if I say so, do say so myself, Sunil. Uh, I got a call uh, from a, a, a caller just saying, I just want to know, can you find out why my clock radio has been gaining time? And, and it, it struck me because I'd noticed the same thing. Well, let's, well let's hear this uh, investigative report about time <laughs> speeding up in Broome with Robert Mailer, Brecky presenter from ABC Kimberley. I just wondered why all the clocks, the electric clocks at home, are gaining time. This is extraordinary, Cathy, because my clock radio, which I used to rely on to get up in the morning, has gained time in the last week or so. The microwave, the oven, the alarm clock. Our microwave as well says morning in Broome. Claire in Broome, clock radio three minutes fast. Fraser in 12 mile says the ball pump timer has gone 20 minutes fast. What is going on? Ian from Derby. I have the result of testing done here in Derby and can categorically think that it's the good old uh, hertz or frequency of the, the power that's coming through and it's slipped its cog and become a bit faster than it should be at 50 hertz. So we followed it up and found out that the power station had been transmitting power at a higher frequency. So I thought the final chapter would be to speak to an expert to try and explain exactly how this works. Professor Peter Wolfs holds the Western Power Chair at Curtin University. We use alternating voltage in Australia. This means that the voltage changes from positive to negative and it does that 50 times per second and it's related to the rotating speed of the generator that's actually producing the electricity. So why are clocks affected by that? Digital clocks actually count the number of voltage reversals each second, and when they see 50 voltage reversals, they assume a second has passed. So if the system frequency is higher, those voltage crossings are happening faster, and the clocks run fast. Rob... I, I only know what time it is because my alarm goes and it reminds me that I'm late for another appointment. How did people in Broome notice that time was going fast? Well, I mean, I noticed it. And I think the thing was people still, I mean, I know I use my phone for my alarm now and so it wasn't affected, but my, I still have a clock radio and I think that was the key one. This clock radio still exists. Uh, and so that, that seemed to be the one. The other thing was it was over a couple of days and it ended up being a, a gaining of some 20 minutes over a couple of days. So it was, wow. it was so actually noticeable um, at the time. Sorry, Effie? Yeah, no, Rob, I was just thinking the clock radio because I usually set mine to wake me up with 
the ABC News, of course. Oh, don't we all? Don't we? And all? so, what would happen is it <laughs> you'd have it. Um, it what it would say it was five o'clock, but it was actually twenty two. Yeah, so what you're yeah, that's right. So no, there was, it was no, 20 past. no it was it was going past. fast. It was going So there was fast. no news. There was no news. So oh, uh, I mean when look I'll tell you now, when Fraser called to say his pump his broom uh, sorry, his bore pump timer was out, we knew we were onto something. Uh, and uh, yeah, certainly <laughs> uh, it, it, it was quite amazing. So and uh, I mean this I just had no idea. And this is obviously only clocks that are, are plugged into mains power, but all clocks which I like of course, clock radios, uh, you know, your oven clock, your microwave clock, some of the things Cathy mentioned, which are mains powered. They are, they are regulated. The time is regulated because of the power station and, and the frequency in which the power is, is generated. It should be 50 hertz. And I think the broom station had gone up to about 50.2 alterations per second, and this resulted in a gaining of some 20 minutes over a couple of days. Uh, they, they corrected it. It generally self-corrects it all the time, but for some reason they had a software glitch apparently, and this is why uh, our perception of time in broom suddenly started to change. This is Tanil Badari on ABC Local Radio. Tell me, at the wedding, did you have Carver? No, we didn't. Um, I actually had car. I I did do Carver for my fiftieth birthday because that was a pirate theme, and so I figured, you know, <laughs> as they sort of went around the, the the seas, they would have called in at ports and had Carver. So yes, um, but I, I was my eighteen year old stepdaughter. I think had more than anyone else, and probably shouldn't have, because it's it's it has some effects. So what is Carver? Okay, it's a root. It's uh, related to the pepper plants and the pepper family. And what happens is I was talking about having my honeymoon earlier in Tanner. And traditionally, um, you would a female would never have carver in an island like Tanner. And I didn't. And I wasn't even allowed when we were there to walk uh, in after sunset. Uh, on on roads that went near Anakamal because it's really just for men. And what they do there, they get a a prepubescent um, boy to chew the carver root uh, in his mouth, chew, 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 chum, chop, and then spit it out, and then they add it to water. And so that's carver in its most traditional way. These days, of course, um, carver, and it is very strong, from some islands and everybody grows different types of carver as far as its effect. But what they're more likely to do now is put it through a, a meat mincer and then add water. Uh, they stir it in a bowl and the first shells of the day, which is how you uh, buy it, uh, are usually the best. The strongest is, is the first stuff, which happens around sunset. So why don't we go with your friend uh, Pasai, as he buys and has very kindly has some kava for us, so we know what's involved. This is Pasai Sope from Vanuatu. We're going to go buy a couple of shells, and they come in two sizes. Yes, the 100 watt shell is full, and the 50 watt shell is half full. Okay. Yeah. We get our shells right now, and this mate, yeah, get your shell. It's something we call tamafa. Okay, let's walk to that corner over there, close to that pipe, so we can wash our mouth afterwards. Okay, now 
we take our cups, lift it up, and we drink. And yes, it tastes disgusting, so now you can spit if you want. Now we're gonna buy something in Vanuatu we normally call washmouth. It's like sweets and stuff just to take off the sourness. We call it washmouth. Okay, let's sit under this uh, little Natsangura house. Sit down and be relaxed and listen to the cover while it's working you. It's like massaging you inside your body. We can talk, talk about what we did today. Take out the stress and put you in the right mood. All those pain just goes away, stress, everything. You just feel so relaxed. It's good to drink and see the sunset because it helps the feeling, just caresses you, you know, all over. Mm, I can actually see that sunset. <laughs> hey, Fee, I love did, the massaging inside. <laughs> did, did, so did they ever swallow it at all, Fee, or do you actually just swallow no. it around your mouth and spit it? Uh, no, you, you you swallow it. You do right. swallow it. You scull it. Okay. And then because it's all in your mouth, you then take water and you sort of and spit it out Gargled just to out. try, and, yeah, yeah, right. try and clean your mouth. But no, you actually have swallowed it. And the funny thing is it's, it's like drinking dirt. Oh. Really disgusting dirt, but I I'm not a real sculler, you know, because as Sunil knows, I, you know, I grew up in an in an area where, of course, girls would never drink. She's a lady. <laughs> She's a lady. So I used to sip it like it was a glass of blizzardly cold white, and people honestly, Nivanawatu people would look at me and almost puke because they couldn't believe that I could sip it and just take it in little bits. I did learn to scull it eventually, but I didn't do it that much because. Really, it you know I do prefer the wine, and I you know it's people can get very very caught up with it and do it every day, and mm. there are carvaholics as they as they're called, and uh, you know it's very much a part of their culture. But it used to be special occasions, mm. not every day as it now is in urban areas like Port Vila, where women do it too. Um, I have. A lot of uh, Nivanawatu uh, friends, who uh, girls who use it to lose weight, they will drink um, and and because it does, uh, it is a bit of an appetite suppressant. Or I think you're really just too lazy to be bothered cooking after you've had it, <laughs> so you don't have any dinner. <laughs> so if you, if you were like me, you would basically cook your dinner first and keep it next to you while you relaxed, so that you could still have something to eat. Well, yes, you, you would you, plan you, ahead, but that kind of takes away from the point of having the carver. I yeah, guess. of 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 watching the sunset and listening to some music, and of course, carver isn't. Um, you can bring a little bit of dried carver back if you visit, um, um, you know, Fiji or Vanuatu or one of the islands here. But you, there's no imported carver into Australia. And it's I actually know, been banned, hasn't it? And yes. especially up in the top end. Why is that? Well, I think they're very concerned about it being another drug that is within, you know, Indigenous communities. I think, though, it has been allowed into Canberra at certain times for uh, cultural festivals because it really is a part of any event. Uh, while I was in um, Vanuatu, I went to a number of different, um, I suppose, openings of things. There was a, a, the Australian government gave a, a donation which built the new library and uh, archives building. And of course, part of any ceremony, there was always cake, cordial and, and carver. 
and you know the men would go over normally first and and sometimes the women would have kava in that environment but it's usually you know like like we see in a, a western setting where you know the businessmen all get together and sort of you know put their hands on their hips and sort of you know yeah, this is what's going on kava is very much you know the men the seniors they 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 take their kava and then they just all chill out nice <laughs> nice. You sound like Versailles there. Versailles is, um, he, he's actually the son of a former president mm. and he was my reggae man on the radio station that I, I helped start. And uh, it's just lovely to hear that deep voice of his. And because he used to put on a Jamaican accent when he was doing his program, <laughs> which is on between seven and eight every night, people really believed that I had a Jamaican broadcaster. And his his name when he when he does the reggae is uh, DJ Surprise, and <laughs> they would say to me, "Where did you get him? Oh, this Jamaican guy's so good." And how come we've never seen him? <laughs> yes, that's right. Now speaking I never of saw, saw him at the Nakamal. Now speaking of announcers, you're about to move to a very high profile position in Brisbane, Rob. Yes, I am. We're, we're, we're leaving Broome after five years here, actually. Um, we're uh, heading off in late May, and we're going to be driving across the top end, in fact, uh, through uh, via Catherine and then uh, sort of Longreach, Mount Isa and down to Brisbane to start the regional drive program over there in June. So tell me, how are you going to hold on to your broominess, you know, your laid-backiness and broom time when you move to Brizzy? Because drive is a very fast-paced show. Yeah, uh, look, I, that's a really interesting question, Sunil, and I'm thinking about it as as a, as a prospect looms that we are actually going back to a city. You know, I, I came from New South Wales originally, and I was living in Sydney, and I don't think I've really comprehended it properly at this point. I, look, I think part of me is just going to make sure I keep on wearing really daggy clothes uh, because <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the Radio's key. Radio's great for that. <laughs> yes, one of the key features. Of, of, funny thing, when I've gone back to city. To, to Sydney, for example, one of the things I've noticed in the CBD particularly is just grooming. Like people look beautiful uh, at work, <laughs> whereas in Broome, it's not that they're not beautiful people around, but they're just not groomed to the extent uh, that that you would be. Uh, I've, I've noticed that, and so maybe I'll just sort of be that really ungroomed person. Keep that uh, broom grooming, Rob. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's been... That would be thongs and shorts. Yes, yeah, that, that, that's for a wedding fee. <laughs> This is Sunday Takeaway with Sunil Badami on ABC Local Radio. Thanks, Rob and Fiona. You can hear Rob on ABC Kimberley Brecky for now, weekdays from 5am, and Fee on New South Wales statewide Arvos from 1pm, featuring a very greedy foodie on Fridays from 2pm. That's me, chatting food yes, two with Fee four. on Fridays. That's right, two but you're four. from 2 And we will see you after the news on Sunday Takeaway on your ABC Local Radio. It's Sunday Takeaway on ABC Local Radio, and I'm Sunil Badami, feeling almost as sweet and slow as the wonderful Ella Fitzgerald from her 1962 album Ella Swings Gently with Nelson, one of the many collaborations she did with the bandleader Nelson Riddle, including Ella Sings the Georgian Ira Gershwin Songbook. Well, as Ella sang, we've all heard about the race between the uh, turtle and the hare or the tortoise and the hare, and we know who ended up in second place. If you don't remember, the old fable says that, you know, after mocking the slow old tortoise, a speedy young hare is challenged to a race by the tortoise. Well, he soon leaves the old tortoise in his dust and, confident of winning, takes a nap. But he wakes up to find the tortoise having kept at it the whole time, having crossed the line and won the race. 
and as the tortoise reminds him, well, slow and steady wins the race. But where would the tortoise end up in today's fast-paced frenetic rat race, which never seems to end? And what are the dangers of taking some time out in the middle of a race while someone else catches up with you? Why is slowness important? Well, surfer, author and editor of Slow Living magazine, Tim Baker, is here to explain why. For someone who embodies the slow living philosophy, he's written so many books, including his latest, The Century of Surf, which is a history of Australian surfing to mark the centenary of the great Hawaiian surfer and Olympic gold medal swimmer, Duke Kahanamoku's historic visit to Australia in 1914. Hi, Tim. Hi, Sunil. How are you? Good, thanks. Now, I hope you're not feeling too stressed. You're feeling relaxed? Uh, Yeah, I've actually been in the ocean this morning, so (laughs) all is well. Oh, it's nice for some. Tell me, Tim, what is slowness as a philosophy? Well, look, it it really started out of the slow food movement in Italy, which uh, was started by a journalist uh, by the name of Carlo Petrini. In, uh, in Rome in 1986 to protest the opening of a McDonald's store on the Spanish steppes. And, um, and really, it was initially about preserving culinary traditions in Italy in the face of uh, the fast food movement. And then it, it's sort of come to permeate other areas of life. I think, you know, slow travel, slow art, even slow business. And, and now I think it's just a, a sort of general response to, um, you know, the mounting sense of um, us all feeling increasingly time poor in the modern world and you know just really wanting to find ways to you know however briefly kind of stake a claim for a little moment or sense of uh, timelessness in in the midst of our busy days well our days seem so marked by time you Mm. know rushing Mm. from meeting to meeting my phone is always beeping about some new appointment and we all dream of living more slowly, but how can we afford to do that when the world seems to be speeding up and employers especially demand so much of us yeah. Oh, look, I think that it takes a certain amount of uh, courage and commitment. But, you know, I strongly believe that if you are able to, I guess, kind of listen to your own kind of inner signals about, you know, what, what is healthy and um, and you can find the uh, the opportunities to kind of stop in, in the midst of your day. I mean, I had a classic example yesterday. I felt really busy. I had a lot, of, a lot on my day and I had a look at it and I thought, I've really got to get to a yoga class today. And and I did, and I swear my to-do list looked so much less daunting after just taking that time out. And I, I know it can sound idealistic, um, uh, and it, look, I, I suffer, um, you know, moments of overwhelm uh, probably as much as anyone, because as you say, I do, um, you know, have a bit on my plate, but yeah, I find it, it all makes more sense and it's all more manageable uh, when you kind of allow yourself that luxury of just stopping from time to time. Well, how can we live more slowly? What little things can we do each day to kind of slow down? Oh, look, you know, I think it's it's a very broad movement and I think it means different things to different people. For some, you know, it's an embrace of a sort of more European or Mediterranean lifestyle like the siesta and the passeggiata at the end of the day. You know, for others, it's probably more about kind of eastern traditions like yoga and meditation and um, for others it's it's about a a kind of creative practice arts and crafts and you know there's a whole sort of movement of embracing traditional artisan crafts Um, so you know I think it's a case of whatever works for people that gives you that sense of um, you know achieving what's sometimes termed a flow state when you know you're kind of absorbed in something that uh you know you cease to be 
aware of the passage of time and um, you can allow yourself that window to just be and, you know, kind of come back to a, a sense of groundedness. And I think, you know, the, the theory is if you can do that on a regular basis that everything else will sort of work uh, better for you. What do you do on a daily basis or a regular basis? Uh, there's a few things. I mean, uh, surfing is a big thing for me and getting in the ocean and just, you know, sitting out in the surf and staring at the horizon and noticing those little subtle changes in texture and colour that can indicate a swell is approaching and and this kind of interesting exercise of trying to position yourself in the right, in the right spot to um, paddle into the choice wave of the morning. Um, yoga is a, a regular thing for me. I mean, even just... I guess having the time at the start of the day to sit down with my kids before they disappear to school or at the end of the day after school and work to uh, kind of read a book or play a game of Uno or my, my son's a bit of a Uno fiend. So there's a bit of that. And, you know, there's these just little seemingly inconsequential things that I think uh, we kind of underestimate the importance of at our own peril. Well, I have to ask you two questions. One is, yeah. how, do, how does something as exciting and frenetic and adrenalizing as surfing promote mindfulness and slowness? Yeah. Oh, look, I think it changes for surfers during the course of their life. I think for a lot of young surfers, it, it is all about performance and adrenaline and that sort of whole action sports kind of mindset and perhaps, you know, being competitive and trying to, you know, make a career as a professional surfer or, you know, win your local club contest. But I think as you get older, the ocean tends to you know kind of smooth off your rough edges over time and uh, it's just more about the time in the water and and where I live on the Gold Coast the surf is very crowded and uh, you know if you're just in it for the competition you're going to find it a pretty stressful activity but if you can find a patch of ocean to yourself and just kind of sit and and I guess treat it more as a sort of uh, meditative thing. And I've heard people refer to surfing as kind of active meditation because you do achieve uh, that sense of uh, mindfulness and you literally can't think about other things while you're surfing a wave because um, the complexities and the challenges that a breaking wave throws up uh, require complete presence. And so if you start thinking about whether you've got a parking ticket on the beach or the phone bill that needs to be paid or uh, other commitments back on land, um, the ocean will quickly dispense <laughs> dispense an abrupt lesson. Well, it, as a freelance journalist myself, I'm mm. often overwhelmed by deadlines. Mm. You know, they come too quickly. They come mm. too often. So I have to ask you, as the editor of a magazine devoted to the slow philosophy, mm. how do you deal with deadlines at Slow Living? Do you just say oh yeah (laughs) oh look no it is i mean it is one of the ironies of the magazine that in in producing i mean admittedly it's a quarterly magazine a seasonal magazine which i really like the idea of so that comes out with the seasons and uh so you know four magazines a year is a pretty civilized pace to uh to work at but you know we have printers deadlines that need to be met and um on sale dates that need to be met so it does require a certain amount of discipline uh but, yeah, I like to think we can allow ourselves the luxury of taking time over things. And uh, I'm a great one for, you know, extending a, a writer a, a bit of an a extra time on a story if they require it. Uh, and, 
you know, I think the again, kind of editor all writers love. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think false deadlines are a great thing. You know, I think you always got to build in a bit of padding there. Well, actually, uh, I was saying to Rob the, when we were having a chat before the show. You know, there is broom time. My mother lives off um, Indian Standard Time, which mm. means if I want her at my place by twelve, I tell her I've got to walk out the door at nine thirty, <laughs> and she's always there at five to twelve. Yeah, <laughs> I hope she's not listening because now she'll have figured it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it is interesting that there are so many, I guess, what we might broadly term more traditional cultures where, you know, the sense of time is regarded as a bit more elastic. I mean, people talk about island time on a lot of island mm. communities. Uh, you know, I spend time in Hawaii. They talk about Hawaiian time. I'm I'm going to Indonesia on a surf trip uh, next week. And in Indonesia, you very quickly learn, you know, the ferry might not leave at the appointed time and... You know, you see these Western surfers on their two weeks holiday going for a surf and it's, they're frantic about every moment of their itinerary and the, the possible loss of an hour of surfing time. And, and, you know, Indonesia teaches you just to kind of let go and roll with things and, um, you know, that things will resolve themselves one way or another and your Western stress levels aren't going to make a difference. I mean, why do you think... Uh... Why do you think Eastern cultures or traditional cultures are so much more accepting of slowness and so much more adept at mindfulness? Yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, I guess it's a, it's a stereotype or a generalisation, but I think, you know, there might be some truth in it that maybe they're kind of less divorced from their traditional lifestyles. I mean, once upon a time, we all would have had to kind of observe the signs of nature to find food and shelter and water. And uh, I guess the more... Uh, the, the the longer period a society has been industrialized, the more divorced we have become from that. And so I guess in the Western world, you know, most of us have very little kind of genetic trace of those more uh, kind of traditional timetables. And, and when you go to sort of remote island communities or, or more traditional communities, you know, you see that those natural rhythms of life and even, you know, Mediterranean communities, I love the rhythms of the of the day in places like Italy where... You know, they observe a siesta and if people want a game of chess, they go down to the village square or the cafe and find someone who's happy to kind of, you know, uh, pass the time of day. Uh, so it isn't just Eastern and, and what we might consider, you know, traditional or re- more remote cultures. I think um, there's lots to learn from all kinds of cultures and uh, that's one of the secrets of the success of the slow food movement too i think it's morphed and changed in every different part of the world it's to kind of travel to this is Tanil badari on abc local radio well we all dream of taking that time out but you actually did it didn't you tim yeah 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 i did i i, I call it my perfect crime you know i I uh, had this dream of travelling around Australia, surfing my way around the coast. It was something I was planning to do as soon as I finished high school. And, you know, it was one of those teenage dreams that I kind of uh, never quite got around to. And then at age 45, I, I guess I, I, I um, build it as a preemptive strike on my midlife crisis. <laughs> uh, and um, and I, th- I just had this thought of what ever happened to that great round Australia surfing road trip I was going to do. And with some trepidation, I pitched it to my wife and two young kids and um miraculously they all gave it the thumbs up and a a sequence of um you know circumstances aligned that allowed us to do it but 
uh, yeah, I realized very early on that if I was going to make it happen, it was going to be something I had to be really committed to and uh, trust that um, those elements we needed to fall into place would. And we were really fortunate that they did and uh, managed to take a year off and pull the kids out of school and drive, uh, I think it's 27,000 kilometers in, in total around the country over a bit under a year. Wow. I mean, uh, when we go on holidays, you know, I love spending time with my family. Mm. I don't really love spending time with them in the car about six <laughs> hours out. Yeah. How did you manage the stress of being in the car with two young children trying to get to a camping ground? Yeah, oh, look, there were lots of challenges along the way, but they were so worth it. I mean, for every bit of, um, you know... Uh, boredom on the road uh you know there was a luxurious week in a bush campground with absolutely no timetable and and that sense of kind of waking up in the morning and just making up your day of sort of over breakfast sort of discussing will we stay here another night or shall we pull out the map and see how far it is to the next sort of desirable campsite um was just so exquisite and i can't uh you know begin to um describe the just the, that that sublime bliss of that sense of timelessness day after day for weeks on end and the watching your kids with uh, having unstructured play in beautiful natural settings with other camp neighbors that you just happen to have met along the way um i you know i don't think i'm idealizing or romanticizing it in hindsight it, i think it was every bit as uh, as sublime as i remember it so tell us what was your favorite memory or place on your trip yeah, look, there are so many. Um, one was uh, Karajini National Park um, in the Pilbara in in Western Australia, uh, and a and a walk we did uh, through a place called Wino Gorge, and and I almost I, when I wrote about this, I referred to it as almost like our entire trip in microcosm because we embarked on this quite challenging gorge walk with our two children, aged nine and five, and with some trepidation, and there's that nervousness of embarking and. And in the end, our, our young boy kind of led the way and as a, as a little kind of scrambling rock hopper, he'd sort of, uh, you know, suss the terrain ahead and, and pick the correct line to take. And at one point, a section of the gorge referred to as the spider walk. You've literally got your both hands and both feet against the walls of the gorge and inching your way along above this icy water. And by the time we got to the end of it, it, it brings you out to this beautiful sort of natural amphitheatre with a rock pool and that then falls away to a series of waterfalls and rock pools off into the distance as far as the eye can see. And it really was uh, one of the most special places we, we ever, we've ever visited. And to do it as a family with this sort of physical challenge to get there and that shared sense of accomplishment was, uh, was something that, uh, you know, I'd like to think that's a, a kind of glue that will bind us through, you know, the <laughs> inevitable tests that life throws up. Well, you, you... It's one thing to go through all that, walking along the gorge, the spider crawl and all mm. that sort of stuff to see, you know, the, the gates of heaven. Yeah. But um, even if you're being mindful, mm. didn't the journey back kind of temper how beautiful it was? Uh, it was interesting coming home. I, at first, I think, you know, my, we were sort of ready to come home. I think it was a, a good length of time. We weren't, um, we weren't desperate to get home and we weren't desperate to keep going. So I think in that sense, it was a, it was a good duration. But about 
a month after I got home, yeah, I think there was a bit of a come down. I did feel pretty flat and just dealing with the reality of even just things like, you know, for that period on the road, you just, you've not got, you had, you've not got the sort of bills arriving in the mail and you've still got to, you know, deal with finances, you know, remotely. Um, but there was an appreciation I got for just the simplicity of that life on the road and how little you really needed. And it, and a, a family of four living in a caravan for almost a year, um, it it never felt oppressive. It never felt like we were confined or claustrophobic. You could always, one thing I learned was you could always just step outside and most of the time you'd be in a beautiful natural setting. So it has been challenging coming back and I do still kind of s- struggle with that from time to time and, and miss the um, the experience. But it's kind of given us a benchmark, I think, where we we however we achieve it we kind of want to be able to sort of build some of that into our world one way or another it's interesting what you say about making do with less um terry robson the author and presenter who's presenting the happiness show on abc digital on saturdays he was talking about um how we we seem to consume so much that the more we consume the more unhappy we become and yet when you look at you know societies around the world and and even philosophies they've always been about giving up the things we have to Mm. do more you know not eating so much not having so much but doing a little bit more Mm. oh yeah look and i think that is a real uh sort of theme of our times i you know through the um the, the work i do for slow living i've come in contact with some really inspiring people and and movements and and uh you know there's an entire um sort of movement known as voluntary simplicity where you know people are are consciously trying to live with less and uh, a writer by the name of Greg Foister writes about this and says you know he he measures the the price of things by the amount of time it takes him to earn the money to pay for that thing and and to question whether he wouldn't rather have the time than the thing and I think if we if we if we all did that we'd probably acquire less things and give ourselves more time look being a freelance writer, my boss is terrible. <laughs> no, I get on with him, me. But even though I don't get paid as much as I would if I had a regular job, the one mm. thing I do love about it is that I could nap every day yes. if I wanted to. Yeah. I often don't get to, but mm. I could if I wanted to. And that freedom, I guess, is like you found on Safari, you know, more valuable, more priceless than anything I could buy. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I had a conversation with a colleague who's also a freelance writer and, you know, we were, we were sort of maligning our lack of superannuation and, (laughs) and and he said to me, well, I figure we're taking our retirement in installments along the way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Uh, you were a grey nomad almost, weren't you? Well, yeah, exactly. That was a big part of the impetus for me. I wanted to do it at an age where I was sort of young enough and fit enough to be able to surf at a reasonable level and make the most of the experiences and, um, you know, I, I don't want to just sort of chisel away for my entire working life and kind of collapse over the finish line of retirement and, you know, securing the knowledge that I've kind of feathered my nest adequately to, you know, to uh, afford a comfortable retirement. But, I, yeah, I really want to enjoy the journey along the way. I mean, I do too. I guess for people like us who have children, how do you balance, you know, that, personal journey Mm. and not having so much with providing and supporting your family yeah I mean that is a huge challenge and it's something I often feel a bit of self-reproach about you know when things come home from school about activities or camps or 
you know, just the things you want to provide for your kids and, and it feels like a stretch or a strain, you know, I, I will often sort of kind of challenge myself, you know, why didn't I kind of get a proper job and, you know, be able to afford my children all the things they would, they would like. But I think what your children want most of all is to time with you. And, uh, you know, I think that's the greatest thing we can give them. And it, it sounds a little trite, but it's, it's so true. And um, that's really such a luxury. And it's a luxury so many of us give away uh, and, and sacrifice in the, in the name of, uh, you know, financial gain. And it's a lovely thought to end on as well. Uh, Tim, that's Tim Baker, the editor of Slow Living Magazine. We've been on Sunday Takeaway with me, Sunil Badami, and we've been talking about slow. Coming up, James O'Loughlin on Sunday evenings. He's got Dr. Carl with a new I Don't Get It. Friend us on Facebook. It's your Sunday Takeaway on ABC Local Radio. <laughs>